This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 1, Episode 12, The Girl Scout Murders. Under starry skies, roasting marshmallows, laughing, singing, and telling tales of unspeakable horrors in the dark. It's all part of the camp experience. Then only one night into camp at Camp Scott in Locust Grove, Oklahoma, the nightmares of the dark turned into reality. On the hot, sticky morning of June 13, 1977, campers were awakened by the horrified screams of a counselor who discovered the bloodied bodies of three children. The girls, Laura Lee Farmer, aged eight, of Tulsa, Oklahoma, Michelle Goose, nine, of Broken Arrow, and Doris Denise Milner, 10, of Tulsa, had been abducted from their tents in the night and murdered. Their small bodies were found bloodied, bound, and stuffed inside their sleeping bags 140 yards from their tent on the western edge of the camp. The horrific scene would later inspire movies like the 1980s Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp and continually haunt the community. The camp closed the next day and never reopened. Its ghostly shells of cabins, washrooms, and play structures still remain whispering the haunting memory of a horrific past. Camp across America would forever be changed as no one was ever convicted of the crimes. The story begins three months before the fateful start to summer camp with an ominous note that suggests the crimes were planned and premeditated. Michelle Hoffman, who was an aide at the June 1977 camp session, was at Camp Scott for a special Girl Scout cadet weekend in April. While there, someone got into her tent when she was away on a training session. Our bags had been scattered all over the tent and some outside, she says. A box of donuts Michelle had brought from home had been emptied and among the donut crumbs she found a note on a small steno notepad. The first couple of pages were written, kill, kill, kill over and over again. Then on one of the pages, there was a message, quote, we're on a mission to kill three girls. The note was disregarded as a prank by other girls at the camp and simply dismissed. On the first day of camp in June, the skies turned violent and a raging thunderstorm echoed above. Campers huddled in their tents. The tents provided adequate shelter and were about 12 by 14 feet long, with canvas sides that could be rolled up or down, and they sat on wooden platforms and held about four cots for sleeping, sharing tent number eight in the Kiowa section of Girl Scout camp, were Lori Lee, Doris, and Michelle. Sometime during the night, all three were sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and strangled to death, then stuffed into their sleeping bags and dumped only 140 feet away on the trail near the camp showers. The gruesome discovery was made by camp counselor Carla Wilhite at 6 a.m. as she made her way to the showers. Her discovery promptly caused much chaos and the entire camp was in a state of shock. Children were not told of the incident and were quickly hushed if they asked questions as chartered buses took them home only after one night of summer camp. Not chancing another incident, the entire camp was evacuated at 10 a.m. as police searched for evidence and the suspect. After nearly 50 years of hosting Girl Scouts, the camp closed 
and never reopened. Two of the girls were discovered inside their sleeping bags, while a third was laid over top of the others. She was so badly beaten that she was nearly unrecognizable. The crime had occurred inside tent number eight, just feet away from other tents, including the camp counselor's very own. No one was awoken, and no one at the time reported anything out of the ordinary. On June 14th, the entire wooden platform of the tent was airlifted to a crime lab. The entire floor was covered in blood. The perpetrators tried to wipe up the blood using towels and the mattresses, and in doing so, left the shoe print inside the tent on the floor. Outside of the tent, law enforcement discovered a totally different shoe print, suggesting that perhaps two or more people may have been involved. The evidence somehow finds its way to the press, and this outrages those in charge of the investigation. A large manhunt begins, and a man of no fixed address is found sleeping in his car just seven miles north of the camp. Police arrest him, take him in for questioning, but later release him as they believe he had nothing to do with the incident. A red flashlight with a piece of newspaper inside it, a roll of duct tape, and a nylon rope were then found close to the bodies and considered the property of whomever did this horrible deed. They were catalogued and stored as evidence. Fingerprints also were lifted from the small bodies, along with a single hair that was determined to be from a Native American. Alongside the tent were a pair of women's glasses and glass cases that belonged to one of the campers. Authorities believe they were part of the evidence, and they were removed and tagged. Hey guys, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about a new podcast we just started called Weird News Daily. And like the title suggests, it's weird, it's news, and it's daily. If you like strange, unusual, funny, sometimes scary news stories, Grab a beer with us and check it out. Just search Weird News Daily on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory. Brighten your day, your drive, your commute with us. Again, that's Weird News Daily. Meanwhile, a group of highly trained sniffer dogs nicknamed the Wonder Dogs from Pennsylvania were on site. They indicated the perpetrators must have walked past or near the camp counselor's tent first, and then toward tent number eight. The dogs made their way into the woods and lost the scent. Investigators were also focusing on the children and the camp staff. Counselors and some of the scouts later told of eerie happenings during the night. There were strange noises, like a frog or a bullhorn, and one camper was sure she heard screams and cries. Another would recall that she saw a shadowy figure shine a flashlight into her tent. Men working at the camp were interviewed and released. Investigators then turned their attention to a nearby ranch where the owner reported a robbery just days prior. Jack Schroff, who owned the ranch, was questioned and even took a polygraph test to which he passed. A newspaper article ran the story and by the way it was written, it appeared as if Schroff was the guilty party. He received death threats and harassing phone calls and ended up in the hospital under mental distress. Sheriff Pete Weaver announced 
that he had found the murder weapon and has three solid prints on a crowbar. The district attorney on the case denies the evidence was found and the media begins another sensationalistic story. The tracking dogs follow scent to a pond near the Schroff Ranch and the pond is drugged, but nothing is found. There is rumor now that a local medicine man has put a curse on the investigation and on the tracking dogs, which he said would soon die. One died of a heat stroke later that day, while another inexplicably dashed out into the road and was struck by a vehicle killing the canine. The tracking dog's owner teases the press by saying they found solid evidence and there will be a break in the case very soon. Sheriff Weaver says they have a suspect in mind, while the district attorney suggests they have three suspects with a mountain of evidence, but that the murder weapon had indeed not been found. He also reveals that two photographs of three women had been found and is of interest. One source says the photograph was located near the children's bodies, while another said it was found in a cave where it appeared someone was living. The district attorney, frustrated with the reporting and the rumors of infighting amongst investigators, initiates a total media blackout. The photographs turned out to be a huge, valuable clue, as state crime laboratories determined the photos were developed by one Gene Leroy Hart while he was incarcerated and working the photo lab of Granite Reformatory. A man named Gene Hart was said to be near King Scott. Authorities know of Gene Leroy Hart as he was an escaped convict. Gene Leroy Hart had been at large since 1973 after escaping from the Mays County Jail. He had been convicted of kidnapping and raping two pregnant women as well as four counts of first-degree burglary. During his confession of the abduction and rape, Investigators learned he had pre-planned the crime months in advance and had no plans on bringing the woman, whom he took deep into the woods, out alive. While one of the women was in the trunk of his car, he tried on her eyeglasses to see if the prescription or look fit him. For some unknown reason, however, Hart abandoned the woman by a small pond. The same pond the canine sniffer dogs had hit on. Hart was raised about a mile from Camp Scott and knew the area quite well. The manhunt for Gene Leroy Hart was on and over 200 law enforcement officials along with over 400 volunteers joined in. The scene again was utter chaos. Several of the volunteers brought firearms while others were so intoxicated they could not function. Others were arrested for drug violations and public relations was a nightmare. Learning that Gene Hart was the prime suspect and that he was a Native American, the American Indian Movement, AIM, stormed into the search to monitor the situation as they believe there was racial profiling. The FBI is dispatched to help with the investigation too. Meanwhile, tensions are high between Native Americans and law enforcement. Jean Hart's mother proclaims that law enforcement planted evidence against her son because they had no other suspect, and Sheriff Weaver is corrupt and is just trying to pin it on anyone. Someone matching Jean Hart's description is seen in the vicinity of Camp Scott, and canine tracking dogs are again dispatched. 
At first, they pick up the trail, but they soon lose it. Meanwhile, the autopsies are completed and another unusual twist in the case is revealed. The three fingerprints found on the body were not fingerprints at all. Authorities refuse to answer any other questions about the fingerprints. They also state that the children were not raped. However, later this is determined misinformation. They also indicate that all possible evidence from Camp Scott has been taken and that the camp will be monitored by a private security firm. Girl Scouts across the country raise money and a $15,000 reward is offered for the capture of the person responsible for the murders. Meanwhile, back at Camp Scott, private security notices someone in the bush and they immediately go to investigate. Upon returning empty-handed, they find a pair of wet shoes and socks in a bag on the steps of the camp director's office. Authorities later determined these were Denise Milner's. A cave near Camp Scott is investigated, and authorities find several pieces of evidence, including a note written on the wall stating, 77617, the killer was here. Bye-bye, fools. Two of the families, now frustrated by the investigation and the camp itself, file a $3 million civil action against the camp. A group known as Drug Awareness offers up a $5,000 reward for the capture of Gene Hart. Tensions are high, and the entire state is on edge. The governor amps up spending, and even the National Guard are called in to help find Hart. A tip then comes in that Hart is staying with a medicine man named Sam Pigeon, in a cabin just 45 miles from Camp Scott. Hart is arrested without incident, but authorities note one strange item on Hart's face. Hanging loosely on his nose is a pair of woman's eyeglasses. On March 19, 1977, the trial begins, and during this time, tensions rose high among the Cherokee natives, and a legal fund was set up to help the defense. There were protests and near rioting from all sides, but ultimately the prosecution failed to convince the jury that Gene Hart was the murderer. He was acquitted of all charges, and according to Oklahoma state law, the trial transcripts and witness testimony were all destroyed. No physical record of the trial now exists. But prosecutors still remain steadfast that they had their man. In this massive effort to uncover evidence, part of it would have involved items that were taken from the Girl Scout camp the same night as uh, the homicides occurred. Uh, some of these were found in a location called the Cellar Cave, and the Cellar Cave was uh, attached to Gene Leroy Hart during that period of time as a hiding place while he had escaped through a, there was a witness who had put him there. But there was also physical evidence in the cave that, that not only tied him to the cave, the cellar cave as it was referred to, but also in that sense tied him to the items that had been taken during the uh, same evening or night of these crimes. Uh, additionally, there was a, a testimony uh, concerning the hair. As I recall, the, uh, the little Milner girl, her hands were taped uh, with tape or duct tape as I recall. And, that a hair uh, found uh, embedded in the tape between the hands of the little girl matched in all characteristics Jean Leroy Hart's hair. 
Now, hair is not an absolute means of identification or accepted as an absolute means of identification, but when you take that along with other evidence, certainly it has probity value, uh, and, and it did in this case, in my opinion. But the defense maintained that Gene Hart was not involved whatsoever. They came with a lot of scientific evidence and a lot of claims, and all that was just, you know, the evidence that they presented at the trial was uh, based upon science, a lot of it, and we were able to show that it was not reliable. Just two, two quick examples. One, there's thumbprint on the flashlight, and it's not Hart's thumbprint. And then another piece of evidence was that there was a footprint in the blood in the tent. The footprint was, I think, a nine and a half, and Hart's feet were 11 and a half. So you can't change your fingerprints or shrink your feet. So, you know, those are scientific uh, pieces of evidence that fly in the face of the allegation. The jury ultimately had to decide Gene Hart's fate, but also raised some interesting, if not frightening, details. We felt like there was a lot of manufactured evidence, a lot of sloppiness in the, in the procedure. I'm not saying he's not guilty, but I am saying that the evidence showed he was not one person done by themselves. We all 12 agreed on that, that there was enough evidence to show that it had been more than one person. As a convicted rapist and jail escapee, Hart still had 305 years of his 308 sentence left to serve in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary and never saw freedom again. On June 4, 1979, he collapsed and died after about an hour of lifting weights and jogging the prison exercise yard. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation still maintains they had their man, but are not commenting on the case any further because it is still an open case. In 1989, the FBI connected Hart to the murders using genetic testing. In 2008, still determined that Gene Hart was the perpetrator, they conducted DNA testing, which fingered Hart as three out of five items tested matched. But the test was ultimately deemed inconclusive because of the age of the samples. Officials said they will attempt to retrieve sperm evidence from other articles in storage for further testing. I feel fairly conclusively that Hart was involved, says Laura Lee's father, Dr. Farmer. The only question in my mind is whether he was the only person involved. And when we look back at the original piece of evidence, the one discarded as a prank, the steno notepad found in the donut box months prior to the murder, it does state, were on a mission to kill three girls were, plural, and three girls were murdered. Even if Gene Hart was one of the perpetrators, there still may be others involved, and like all unsolved cases, someone, somewhere, knows something. And that person should, after all these years, simply come forward to allow for a conclusion to this sad story.
Hey guys, I'd like to take a quick break to tell you about a new podcast we just started called Weird News Daily. And like the title suggests, it's weird, it's news, and it's daily. If you like strange, unusual, funny, sometimes scary news stories, grab a beer with us and check it out. Just search Weird News Daily on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory. Brighten your day, your drive, your commute with us. Again, that's Weird News Daily.